Hey, this is Stu at Bitcoin Fi, the cross section between financial independence and crypto. And today's episode is part two of my interview with Michael Waymans. If you missed last week's episode, which is part one of our interview, I recommend that you go back and listen to that first so that things will blend together a little bit better this week. And I hope you enjoy learning more about how to avoid several of the pitfalls and navigate the beginner's journey into crypto. And with that, we'll get back into the interview. Okay. So investing more than you can afford to lose, let's talk about that. How do you decide how much to invest? Well, not investing more than you can afford to lose, I guess it's just a general investing rule. It's a golden rule of investing. It doesn't necessarily have to do with Bitcoin or cryptocurrencies only. So it's, it's a rational thought process for investing in general, but it is much more important in cryptocurrencies. Why? Because it's such a volatile market. And if you invest more than you can afford to lose, then you automatically will be emotionally attached to what you invested. So what happens with Bitcoin or other cryptocurrencies, if they crash by 80%, what will happen? You're scared to lose the rest of it and you might sell. You know, and if you can afford to lose it, what you're investing, then you're at peace of mind and then just leave it there patiently, long-term, and maybe even buy the dip. That's why not investing more than you can afford to lose is so important. If you can't afford to lose it, then why invest it in this highly volatile market? No, that makes sense. And when I first got in in 2017, this was another issue I had maybe you had the same issue. I call it crypto insomnia, (laughs) where I was literally going to bed at my normal time at 10. But I was so anxious about my $1,500 that I put in. And I could afford to lose that at the time. But but still, I was just so wrapped up, I would wake up out of anxiety, pure anxiety at two, three or four in the morning. And I would check and see what the crypto market was doing and check my coins and just see what they were doing because it never shuts down. And I think I was a little bit too wrapped up in that, even though I could afford to lose it, but it is tough because it is so volatile and it is so intriguing when you're new. I think one of the keys to this is something that Motley Fool talks about every once in a while, your time horizon for any investment should probably be at least five years, if not longer. And Warren Buffett says his favorite holding period is forever. Now you mentioned when you see these big dips, a lot of people will panic sell. They will get emotional. We see this with the stock market too. And it's been pretty volatile this last week, but even though we're not that far from all-time highs, people are getting spooked by Omicron and stuff and, and rightfully so. But but you shouldn't need that money. If you, if you do need it in less than five years, then it's in the wrong spot, right? Anyway, that's the way I look at it is whatever you're not going to need for at least five years, sure, put it in and you should be able to be at peace with that. But if you aren't, then you might need to relook at how much you have in and, and uh, build up more of an emergency fund and whatever else. Yeah, I agree with you, Stu. And the 
you know, time in the market will be to the timing of the market. And like you mentioned at the beginning of this podcast, that if you stay in Bitcoin or if you've stayed in Bitcoin in the past for at least three to four years, you're always in the positive, which of course doesn't guarantee that it'll be the same in the future. Well, one other thing I was going to say with the stock market is there's a bunch of studies that show that the average investor only gets a three to 4% return, even though the average stock market return over the last century and for most time periods is about seven to 10, maybe up to 12%, depending on which time period you're looking at. And I'm talking multi-decade time periods. So why does the average investor underperform the average market so badly? It's because of these emotional decisions. I look at it right now with the ARC funds, which are 40% off their highs. And that's the that's Kathy Wood and her innovation funds. I mean, her funds returned 100% last year, just killed the market. And when do you think the most inflows are? It's as they see these headlines saying, Kathy Wood, her five funds did 100% last year. Everyone piles into that. That means that they're buying high. And now they're 40% down. And now people are selling out. So now her funds are seeing a bunch of outflows. So what's the number one rule of investing? You buy low, you sell high. But what these people are literally doing is chasing funds and they're buying high and then they sell low. Sometimes when you look at your 401k, you look at, oh, this has done well. This fund was the best one last year. So I'm going to pick that. But then when you look at your funds the next year and you see that it underperformed and another fund is doing better, you switch out. And what you're doing is all the time is you're selling low and you're ending up buying something up that's high. And I think the best thing to do, just to make the point, is most of the time you should never sell. Whatever you bought, don't sell it. Unless maybe it's some of these alt and meme coins, then maybe just sell it and get it over with and put it into Bitcoin. Maybe Ethereum too, if you want a little. But the best investors in all these studies are the people that are dead. Their accounts were just sitting there. At least that's what Fidelity finds. The dead people make no trades and therefore they outperformed everyone else. The second best group in these Fidelity studies is the people who forgot their password or forgot about that account. Again, they made no trades. Those are the two best types of investors because they're not getting in their own way and not selling at the wrong time, not buying at the wrong time. Anyway, that's some random thoughts about that. Same goes for Bitcoin investors. Those that lost access to their Bitcoins performed best in the last decade, right? The newer someone is to Bitcoin, the more they care about the price and the more they look at how the price moves up or how it falls down. So that's exactly what you described, right? You said in 2017, you woke up in the middle of the night to check the price. (laughs) Yeah. Did you experience any of that when you first got into crypto, that crypto insomnia where you're just addicted to it? Totally. So how do you at the price all the time? Yeah. So how do you get past that? I think it's part of the journey. It it, it can't be skipped. (laughs) Okay. I think everybody just goes through that stage. 
and then it falls. Then you go through the stage of the candy shop called uh, altcoins, buying many of those, researching them, checking out the team and the white papers. I had over 90 different cryptocurrencies at some point. Bitcoin outperformed them, except maybe Ethereum and two, three other uh, coins. And if I would have just held on to Bitcoin, I would have had much more gains compared to what I experimented with all the trading. Also, like you said, patience is key, right? Like the stock market, it's the same. The money flows from the impatient people to the patient ones. And it's all about long term. So like delayed gratification versus instant gratification. And especially in extremely volatile markets, it's very hard to control yourself because of these rapid price movements. That's why it's so important to not invest more than you can afford to lose because you will automatically become emotional. How to get past the crypto price insomnia? I guess it takes time and I guess the best recommendation I can give is to also look at other metrics that we don't have in the traditional evaluation of financial assets, which is unique to cryptocurrencies. For example, with Bitcoin, we can look at the hash rate. The hash rate right now is at an all-time high. That provides security for the network. So Bitcoin is very, very stable and secure network. Second metric is how many Bitcoins are miners holding? Are they selling them off quickly? Uh, because this shows how confident the miners that are at the core of Bitcoin's network functionality, how confident they are in the network. And this metric is also at an all-time high of Bitcoin's history right now. Then we look at the adoption rate. Bitcoin is being adopted much quicker than the internet has been adopted. In the next few years, if this continues, we'll be at over 1 billion users. That's a very interesting metric. Then we see more institutional investors moving in. That was impossible four years ago. You know, We see much more apps that make it very easy to buy Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies. Wallets that are much easier to manage. I remember four years ago, I, hold, I held seminars just describing how to buy cryptocurrencies and how to create a wallet or how to set up your hardware wallet with a ledger or a treasure. It's become much easier today. And this accessibility combined with even countries starting to adopt it as legal tender, like El Salvador, announcing, you know, maybe... Right now, it seems really crazy and insane to create something like a Bitcoin city even. I think these are the metrics that matter more than the price. And the newer someone is to Bitcoin, the more they look at the price, but the less they should. Yeah, I agree. I have a few ways that this can be overcome. You did mention Warren Buffett's quote, and he's saying this about the stock market. It's also true about Bitcoin and crypto is he says the stock market is a machine for transferring money 
from the impatient to the patient. The people that are buying and selling are getting in their own way and they're essentially providing liquidity for others to buy more at lower prices. And anyway, you see that in a lot of different markets. So a few ideas, if you are gonna buy, I really like the Celsius app because they have a mode called HODL mode and HODL stands for hold on for dear life. You click this button and it will not let you transact for 24 hours. Basically you can turn it off and try to trade, but you have to wait 24 hours before you can execute anything. So it keeps you from making an emotional decision in the moment. Another way that you might get over this is to delete the trading apps, delete Coinbase, delete CoinMarketCap or wherever you go. Don't look at the price. Maybe set up some dollar cost averaging and just ignore it and don't look. But I think the biggest thing for crypto insomnia and keeping your emotions safe from trading stocks, Bitcoin or otherwise is just education. I think I was so anxious about it because I didn't understand it. I used to have trouble sleeping because I had crypto. Now I have trouble sleeping because I'm worried that I don't have enough. <laughs> so it's kind of switched for me, but it's because I've invested in my education. I've bought courses, I've read books and you know, I'm trying to understand everything. And the more you understand, the better you can rest and be at ease with everything. Exactly. And this education process, you know, it, it starts out at zero and then you add to it. And that's why I think you can't really skip the price insomnia of looking at the prices the whole time. Of course, you will probably look less at the charts if you that listen to the golden rule of not investing more than you're ready to lose. But still, there's a high cor correlation, I believe, between newcomers and looking at the charts. So education is the key. Learning about Bitcoin and, and what it means and how important it can be for millions and millions of people. Um, going on to maybe the next pitfall, thinking short-term. Again, a lot of these are building on each other, but thinking short-term, trying to time the market, waiting for the dip. How do we think about these issues? Yeah, I think it, uh, it goes hand in hand with, with what we just mentioned. You already mentioned the dollar cost averaging uh, strategy. Because this is such a volatile market, it really makes sense to buy in at different points of time. I personally just automate this process with a small budget I have on a monthly basis. And uh, that's it. So I don't have to look at the charts. I don't have to time anything. Um, I believe that we are still in the accumulation phase, early adopters phase. And that's why I just accumulate over time. Yeah, Dan Held has some interesting thoughts on this. He says Bitcoin is always the same price. It's fiat currency it's the u.s dollar that's changing not bitcoin which i think is a maybe that's the extreme other side way to look at this but you know i had a lump sum of money that i wanted to invest back in august and i'll admit i i borrowed against my house to get allocated 
and I did buy in. I bought in three different buys because, you know, it's very hard to time it. And I also had limit orders to save on fees. I think that's one of the bigger issues with dollar cost averaging. Depending on how much you're buying on Coinbase, you might be paying up to 10% in fees. Like if you're doing a $10 purchase. So that's pretty steep. If you set up manual limit orders, it's way less on Coinbase. And I have a tutorial on that, but that's like very manual. I don't know where you like the dollar cost average, but what I'm leaning towards nowadays is the strike app because they have no fees and the spread is minuscule. It's like 0.2% or something. So just a tiny, tiny spread on the actual Bitcoin price. And you can actually dollar cost average into Bitcoin as little as $1 at a time. And you can do it as often as every one hour. So you could literally be buying a dollar an hour around the clock. And that's one way you can dollar cost average. Of course, you can do larger amounts and more spread out, but strike has made it pretty easy and extremely cheap to dollar cost average. So another issue that new people run into is something we call FUD and also FOMO. Those are two fun acronyms. FUD is fear, uncertainty, and doubt. And then FOMO is the fear of missing out. So how do we overcome FUD? Because I think that is something that really plays with people's emotions. And this ties into what we've talked about earlier with people getting in their own way. Yeah. Overcoming FUD is simply done by learning more about Bitcoin. I would say 90% of the FUD we can see spread in social media or news headlines is associated with the price declining sharply. But we know that Bitcoin is extremely volatile and moves up and down rapidly over time. And learning that this price decrease or increase is the nature of Bitcoin helps to understand that these headlines you know, are really not meaningful. There are some real reasons for Bitcoin FUD. For example, if I would see multiple double spendings in the network, that would be a big alarm bell ringing, right? Or if the hash rate is at an all-time low, that would be very interesting because then the network safety is quite low. Or if Bitcoin miners are selling their Bitcoins immediately. So there is reasonable FUD, but 90% of it is just about the price movement short and middle term, and that doesn't matter. Okay. And so some of the biggest topics of FUD, maybe we can, we just hear the same things over and over. It's a bubble. You might hear that China is banning it. They banned it like a hundred times by now. You will hear about government regulation. You will hear about Tether. Tether is a US dollar stable coin. And honestly, that one is the one that scares me the most because I just don't know how to make sense of it. But what I'll say at a very high level is basically Tether is making a tokenized US dollar. And supposedly they have assets in reserve backing those dollars, similar to how the US used to be on the gold standard. They're saying that for every Tether dollar, there is a US dollar behind it or some other asset. And 
I believe they're organized on some island or something incorporated in some offshore province or whatever, where they are free from the US regulators. And supposedly they're just printing dollars out of nowhere, tokenized US dollars out of nowhere with nothing behind it and essentially propping up Bitcoin, propping up the whole cryptocurrency market. Again, I don't know the truth of it all, but that's one of the biggest ones I hear all the time and I want to learn more about it. But if you have anything else to say about Tether or some of these other common topics of FUD, what should we look out for? So about Tether, that's the thing in the cryptocurrency space. Many people label themselves cryptocurrency experts, but every single cryptocurrency is oftentimes very different from one another. So I would call myself like, you know, I have some advanced knowledge in Bitcoin, but not in Ethereum, for example. Same goes for Tether. I've heard these, uh, the statements you just addressed and the concerns associated with it, uh, but I don't know. I simply don't know. But what I do know, or what I think I know is, even if that's true, the, the, the Tether FUD, then that will be a bubble that pops, that will drive prices down also for Bitcoin quite dramatically. But I think it's part of the process. For example, Mt. Gox was hacked, right, in 2014. That was the only Bitcoin or that was the biggest Bitcoin exchange back then. And the price dropped from $1,200 to $240 or something roundabout. And that was a huge problem because over 840,000 Bitcoins were lost. 200,000 were found back later in some kind of mysterious way. And there's a Japanese firm taking care of selling off these Bitcoins. So for example, in early 2018, approximately 36,000 of these Bitcoins were sold, which dramatically moved the price down, made Bitcoin drop over a couple of months. Even though that's bad for your personal wallet in that moment, that's good for a healthy Bitcoin distribution. And the more of these scams or tethers or other things happen, the more people will become aware of that, the less people will fall for it in the future, and the less likely it is to happen again. And the, the, the whole network can improve. So I would compare it a little bit to the internet's early days, right? We had, if you click somewhere on the wrong thing on your screen, you would have a virus on your computer and you couldn't use it anymore. And the early days of new revolutionary technology, we see this happen very often that the, I don't know if you experienced the ICO craze in 2017 when you got into it. No, I kind of steered clear of that. Well, good for you <laughs> because there was uh, thousands of projects popping out of nowhere, uh, marketing themselves as the new and, and big Bitcoin. And like, I, I don't have the numbers in my head right now, but I would think like 99% of them just drop down to zero after a while. And it's interesting to see, for example, on CoinMarketCap, uh, we can go to historical snapshots and compare the top 100 cryptocurrencies throughout the last eight, nine years. And you'll see Bitcoin was always number one. And behind that, you'll have Ethereum, Ripple, 
maybe two, three others. And everything else pretty much changed over time, went to zero, dropped out of the top 100, new ones rose up again and um, yeah, died off eventually. Yeah, it definitely has changed a lot. Again, the third through however many coins has had a lot of rotation. A lot of things come in and out of favor, but it really seems like between Bitcoin and Ethereum, you can't really go wrong. But anyway, yeah, I think we see these cycles. Like when Bitcoin is going up and up and up and reaching some new all-time highs, you do get a lot of the FOMO. And that's maybe when you should not be buying as much. But then on the way down, you just hear all this FUD, all these things that are trying to, I mean, essentially they're, they're trying to shake you out so that they can buy coins cheaper. And that cycle happens over and over again. But as soon as it starts going back up again, you kind of get this euphoric FOMO again. So it's, it's interesting. I feel like the news cycle can be easily manipulated. And I'll actually, I'll link this YouTube video. It's pretty interesting about how people do this with stocks all the time too, where they'll post something or put out a news article or put out a report to knock a stock down so that insiders can be buying it. I mean, this is actually pretty common. Um, Kramer, he's a pretty popular stock analyst. He's got his TV show. And he explains how this is done by hedge funds all the time, just to kind of create this FUD so that they can get an entry point. And it's kind of concerning to me how much this happens. But anyway, I guess my preference, my solution to this is if you are prone to this, if you're new to it, maybe don't pay attention to the news. Uh, Delete the news app from your phone. If it's going to make you do something you're going to regret, um, just kind of tune out from it. And I, I have a very hard time doing this. When I get into something, I get very into it. So even though my own advice I, I didn't take, I still don't take. Um, <laughs> I don't know. That, that is a solution. I just, uh, I'm not even very good at implementing that, but it's kind of tough to overcome. So do we want to talk about really quickly keeping crypto on exchanges? Why is that something that is a pitfall? for people new to crypto. What's the problem with keeping your Bitcoin on Coinbase or Celsius, BlockFi, Kraken, wherever you happen to buy your Bitcoin? Well, first off, I would say Bitcoin exchanges, especially regulated, your go-to exchanges that you just mentioned have become much more secure over the years. So it's not that big of a problem anymore, but With Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies, one of the features is you can have full self-custody. You can be your own bank, right? And like Andreas Antonopoulos says again and again and again, not your keys, not your Bitcoin. So an exchange is a very interesting target for a hacker. It's a pool of digital assets worth millions or billions and they will be attacked by every single measure possible, be it social engineering, be it an insider job, you know, some employee or somebody applying for a job in the security space, they're uh, sneaking into the system and then trying to uh, run away with the assets. Of course, I already mentioned that security has become much, much better in the last years. So there's multi-signature, 
kind of ways to make sure that that doesn't happen anymore. But still, why not become your own bank, have full control of what you own compared to having to trust a third party? Yeah, okay. So to break this down even more simply, I don't know how many people listening actually know what it means to self-custody. I don't know if they know what it means to have your private keys. So, but it has to do with the cryptography. Every wallet has private and public keys. And the private keys are the ones that give you access to your Bitcoin. And I think to put it very simply, the private key is just a randomized 12 word phrase. And as long as you have that, you have access to your Bitcoin or to your, whatever crypto it is. But the problem with keeping it on the exchange is the exchange is managing that for you, right? So I probably need to make a YouTube video on this and I need to learn it myself because I know Santa is bringing me a, a uh, Ledger Nano X hardware wallet. So I can go off exchange and hold my coins basically on a thumb drive. And then as far as the private key, you have to store that on a piece of paper or somewhere. I mean, there's risks to this. So if your piece of paper gets wet and you can't remember the 12 word phrase, then you're gonna have a hard time getting that Bitcoin out. You, you essentially will lose access. If it gets burned, that piece of paper, if your kid rips it up with scissors or anything, um, there's some problems with that. And so you might memorize it, but what if you get a traumatic brain injury? What if only you memorize it, but your spouse does not? So I did buy this thing, it's called crypto tags, where you can put your seed key on these titanium things that are fireproof. And in theory, pretty much indestructible. They're bulletproof, they're heat proof, they're you know, pretty much unbreakable. And I'm looking at that, but one other solution is you mentioned multi-signature where that means you, you get three different keys, I think. And there's a company called Casa that, that offers this, but basically to access your, your private keys, um, like if, if anyone accesses your private keys, this, this one backup that you have on a piece of paper or whatever, they can steal your coins, right? And Exactly. From everywhere in the world immediately. And yeah. that's a huge issue because people would immediately come to the conclusion, obviously, that, hey, Michael, if I whack you and, you know, torture you or whatever, you know, let's go through every scenario then you will give me your private key and then now all your Bitcoins are gone. So of course, if you have a substantial amount and maybe you're a public figure, uh, you wouldn't just have your passphrase or your private key on a piece of paper. You would go back to the bank model of having somebody else partially in control. And that's what multi-signature uh, refers to that you have multiple signatures or multiple private keys needed to move the funds from A to B. And that's what exchanges have, right? So exchange CEOs don't just have all the funds on a piece of paper at their home. They can set up a two of three multi-signature model or three 
of four or 10 of 15, you can model it and program it in very, very interesting and safe ways. And there's companies uh, that take care of that. This is like an own rabbit hole to, to dive into this whole custody or management of cryptocurrencies, because you already mentioned the Ledger Nano X, which Santa is bringing. Um, even if you lose that thumb drive, the Bitcoins are not gone, right? That's right. also something to understand and learn. It's like, what do you mean it's not gone? I thought it's on this thumb drive. No, it's not on the thumb drive. The ledger is simply only there to generate your private key in an offline and safe manner. Right. So if I lost that thumb drive, then I could still get a new Ledger Nano X and I could put in my private key and therefore gain access to that wallet again, because really the coins are still in the Bitcoin network. It, the, the coins obviously exist on the internet. They, they don't exist anywhere else. They are just assigned to a certain wallet on, on a certain block of the blockchain. And so to get those back, the key is not the hardware wallet. The key is not your computer. It is the 12 word passphrase. Exactly. So there's 12 word passphrases. There's 24 word passphrases. Uh, Ledger will automatically provide you with a 24 word passphrase, for example, to make it uh, even a bit more secure. Uh, with mobile wallets, you have oftentimes have 12 word passphrases. So you can download, a, there's several free options available in app stores or Google Play Store to have a free mobile wa wallet, but your phone is connected to the internet and all these things. And the private key might be exposed in a way when it's being created. And that's why the ledger, for example, which you mentioned, um, is so interesting. Yeah. And again, this is, this is hard for new people. This is a problem. There's still not an elegant solution because what it sounds like, I mean, there are multiple steps here. What you have to do is, number one, you have to be confident, you know, copy-pasting a wallet address, which many people that own Bitcoin or any other crypto, they've never sent it. They've never dealt with the wallet address, right? And so step one is to kind of get familiar with that. Step two is to get either an app, like you said, on your phone or a hardware wallet like a Trezor Model T or Ledger Nano X, and there's others as well. You have to generate this seed phrase for the hardware wallet or the, the mobile wallet, and you need to store that. And with the multi-signature, like you said, then, so the next step in my mind would be to get CASA or maybe I think there's one called Unchained Capital or something. Mm -hmm. And if you lose that seed phrase, what it, what it is, you can buy this plan to have two out of three multi-signature or three out of five. And to transact, you need two out of these three seed phrases to be punched in. So even if my crypto tags, my titanium seed phrase got stolen, they would not be able to be accessed because they have to hack two of my three seed phrases. Is that kind of the idea? Exactly. That's the idea. And these storage techniques are becoming more sophisticated every month. So there's a lot of innovation in the space. Like I mentioned earlier, I remember teaching how to store cryptocurrencies in seminars a few years ago. 
it took a few hours to explain. Now I wouldn't even um, hold these seminars anymore because it's become so easy compared to back then. And that drives mass adoption as well. It's one of the key factors, right? Accessibility in all ways. So every Bitcoiner or person invested in cryptocurrencies is interested in making it easier for non-tech people. And that's why innovation is very, very quick in this space. Yeah, I mean, this is a level that not a lot of people are going to get to, but depending on the price action of Bitcoin, if what if one Bitcoin becomes a million dollars, even if you had only put in a few thousand, that now becomes, you know, $50,000, you might want to consider this self-custody. I mean, at what level of, of value do you want to consider this? It's very subjective, but as soon as you get a few thousand dollars, you might want to consider learning about this. And, and Dan Held also talks about this because he keeps some on exchanges because what if you have a traumatic brain injury and you can't remember this or how to retrieve it? You know, you're on life support. What if your family isn't interested? What if you're, you have no one that you can trust and that cares? You know, how do you lay out these steps to retrieve it? It's, it's something I'm talking with my wife about because I can't be the only one that knows how to get it, how to get access again, you know, if something were to happen to me. So again, it's tricky, it's tough, but there are some serious steps that you need to take to secure your crypto once it gets to a certain amount. And, and just one other way, this is called, you mentioned with this, the mobile apps and exchanges, those are called hot wallets because they're connected to the internet. But what you're doing is essentially moving to a cold wallet, meaning there's no way it can be hacked except for that private key because it's not connected to the internet. So with exchanges, you are exposed to hackers and, and scammers all the time through multiple different ways of attacks. But when you go offline, you take your crypto offline, then you're fully in charge of it. So you remove all the hackers and scammers, but it's up to you not to lose your key. It's up to you not to you know, die or get a traumatic brain injury and not to lose your coins forever for your kids or your family or whatever, right? So again, it's just, it's tough. There's no really good solution, but they are working on it. And anyway, I'd be curious to know if you know of any other companies that are working on this problem that I hadn't mentioned. Well, companies in itself, Unchained Capital, you mentioned that one already, a uh -huh. US-based company, which is uh, on the forefront of solving these problems. Um, but also you mentioned like inheritance of cryptos and Bitcoins. There's actually also solutions for this. You might go too deep in the technical space now, but there's like time lock features and other possibilities to manage this. But if you're a public figure, like let's say Michael Saylor, right? He announced last year that he personally holds about 16 to 18,000 Bitcoins, I believe. That's a substantial amount of money. So you would think he's not safe on the streets anymore to go outside. Okay. Yeah. But, but I get what you're saying about Michael Saylor. You know, is it safe for him to even go out in public because he has so much Bitcoin? What you're saying is with the multi-signature is it does no good to capture me. It does no good to torture me or kill me because you will not get access from me alone. 
like multi-signature spreads out how you have to, you'd have to hack like on several different levels, very sophisticated things. So it is pretty safe, but anyway, interesting problems to, to deal with if you end up with uh, millions of dollars in crypto. So, yeah, yeah. that would be a nice problem to deal with though. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Okay. We'll move on to some rapid fire questions to finish this out. In your opinion, what's the most exciting thing going on in the crypto space? I would say decentralization of centralized systems. The most impactful one being money and finance. And I guess it's not by coincidence that this was the first use case of blockchain technology named Bitcoin. Other interesting developments in the crypto space, I would definitely say NFTs. I guess that's a buzzword being used a lot right now as well as the metaverse, um, very exciting topics. And the whole web 3.0 uh, DAOs, decentralized autonomous organizations, etc., is probably gonna be the next big wave of disruption going on. And I believe it's gonna be bigger and faster than we can imagine as of now. But I'm personally very, very beginner level on these topics and that's something i think is important to address because oftentimes we think that somebody that knows a little bit about crypto automatically knows about all these other things going on it's true it's hard to keep up like nfts in the metaverse i still haven't really caught the vision behind those um, decentralized autonomous organizations are pretty interesting i think those could be pretty big everything you touched on it's hard to keep up in the crypto space right now it's very hard to keep up and i think nfts in itself right now are totally overhyped but underhyped in the long term like what can actually happen with this this non-fungible tokens right now it's i think it's like this ico craze all over again um but admittedly i don't understand a lot about it so I'll refrain from putting out a strong opinion. Yeah, that's interesting you say that. I think you could say that about almost anything in crypto. Almost everything is overhyped in the beginning, but underhyped in the long term. Everything you just mentioned. So, all right. So, what coins are you most interested in? Yeah, if you would have asked this question uh, three years ago, I would have named. Uh, a list of 10 to 20 cryptocurrencies. But now, after some time in the market, I would answer simply Bitcoin. Um, I believe it to be the safest and most decentralized. It has the biggest network effect and the market represents this since its inception and slowly building on top of that with different layers to scale and to solve other issues of the network. So would you consider yourself a Bitcoin maximalist? Do you see a use for holding Ethereum or any other altcoins? I don't personally. So I only hold Bitcoin. I used to hold all kinds of other cryptocurrencies. Bitcoin maximalist, I would uh, go back and first maybe try to define the word. So if a Bitcoin maximalist is somebody that believes that Bitcoin is the safest and most decentralized network where 
many other layers can be built on top of that to solve pretty much all issues that are associated with Bitcoin as of now, because it's an evolving product, then I would say, yes, I'm a Bitcoin maximalist. If you would define it in a way, meaning to uh, close oneself's mind to not look at other projects, then I would say no. I think the whole crypto space in itself is very disruptive and innovative, and you should always keep an eye out to other projects. At the same time, I've seen a lot of, you know, simply marketing happening without really much behind the project. So I'm, I'll, I'll admit I'm very uh, skeptical with new projects claiming they're better than Bitcoin in certain ways. Yeah, definitely pretty interesting. Um, yeah. Who who do you like to follow and and learn from? I really loved to listen to or still love to listen to Andreas Antonopoulos. He has a nice YouTube channel and he explains Bitcoin to beginners. He's been in the space since 2012. He describes how he found Bitcoin and thought that it's just simply nerd money and really describes his journey in the crypto space in a very tangible way. And uh, yeah, he published multiple books like Mastering Bitcoin or Understanding the Lightning Network. Uh, also like to, I can recommend the book, The Bitcoin Standard by Seyftin Amos. Um, it's a great read. And in general, I like to listen and watch and follow people that have been in the space for a longer time. Yeah, definitely. And I'll link these people on their YouTube channels or wherever they put out their content. I'll link those in the show notes. So what are some final words of advice for those getting into crypto? What would you tell people getting into crypto? Well, the solution to most of the pitfalls we mentioned is simply learning about Bitcoin, because then you become immune to a lot of the FOMO and FUD that's going on. And the FUD and the FOMO is especially strong in this space because it's such a volatile space and it's and it could be you know quite complex to understand especially in the first one or two years another one would be to like you mentioned earlier to see it and treat it as a long-term investment if you want to get into crypto or bitcoin and want to make money in one year you're going to have a bad time you're going to have to find you know you have to be lucky it's pure speculation in my opinion the Bitcoin price could fall by 80% in the next months, you know? And so this is, this is a long-term game. That's very important to know in the moment you're investing. Another point is like we also discussed earlier, investing on a regular basis with small amounts that you can afford to lose. So I think the combination of these few points I just mentioned, that's, the solution to many of the pitfalls. And that's what I would recommend to do. And when you're in doubt, just simply zoom out because then you can really appreciate how the price of Bitcoin developed over the years, right? You also said earlier, we had an all-time high of, I don't know, 68, $69,000 just last month. Now we're at somewhere around 50K. Um, that creates headlines, but let's zoom out one year. You know, it appreciated like, like tremendously. 
And that's why it's so important to be patient and to not focus so much on the price on a daily, weekly, or monthly basis. Definitely. All right. Well, thanks for coming on the show. Where can people reach you if they have questions or want to learn more from you? I'm reviving my blog, bitbeginner.com, which I started in early 2017 in a purely German version, but now going to uh, duplicate it in English fashion and update it on a regular basis. So bitbeginner.com. All content will be free. I'm 100% independent. There's no sponsors. There's no products I'm selling because I want to build like a space of trust where people can have insights and learn about Bitcoin in a free and easy to grasp fashion. Uh, You can contact me over there or just simply find me on LinkedIn. Those are the two methods to find me, follow me and see more of what I do and publish. Cool. All right. Thanks for coming on, Michael, and sharing some of your experience and some great insights here for anyone that's new to crypto. Well, thanks for having me and I really appreciate it. And uh, yeah, looking forward to your other podcasts coming up. Well, that wraps up this episode of the Bitcoin Fi podcast. And I really appreciate Michael coming in and sharing his perspective about Bitcoin and crypto. Hopefully you found it valuable. If so, please share it with a friend. And I will be back next week with some more content. I'm also planning to get a few more guests, hopefully for some episodes in February or March. So if you have questions, leave me a voicemail, send me an email, reach out, join the Facebook community, and remember that financial independence is doable.